0: turn to first uh you can turn to philippians not first philippians turn to philippians chapter two uh i want to tell you thanks to the band you guys give them a round of applause if you don't mind they do a good job um i say this a lot i'm going to remind you again we're blessed to have the musical talent in the band that we do uh up here especially north of amarillo we usually don't get that kind of talent I filled in for a little church last week in Doward and sweet, sweet church, and they're doing a lot of good things, but they have to use YouTube, and that's a, that's a whole lot different than when you've got a, a band. So uh, always make sure you tell them thank you, and, and we're blessed to have them. Um, so Philippians chapter uh, 2. So, so what we've been doing after we finished the Beatitudes is we've just been doing a short series, and, and as we've said, we've called it Reset. Uh, and basically what we've said is that we're going to go back and look at the gospel and how that message, once received, changes the way that we live. So, so we always have to start with the gospel. The Christian life starts there. It starts with what Jesus has done. Because if you start with you, if you start with your behavior and what you do, then what you do is you perform, uh, pr- uh, promote a form of works righteousness where you spend your life trying to earn your spot before God. Where you spend your life trying to say, hey, look at all the good I did. Look at my church attendance. Look how good my kids are. And you do all these things hoping that in the end, you're going to hand him your resume and he's going to be like, oh man, awesome, good job, right? But the gospel says that Jesus has earned a spot for us. That, that Jesus has performed for us and that God accepts us on the basis of Jesus' perfect life. And that when that message gets a hold of our hearts, we then live for Jesus, not to earn his love, but because we've already been given his love. In other words, it's living for the one who's already lived for us. And so for the next two weeks, I want to look at that dynamic out of the book of Philippians. Philippians, as many of you know, was written by the apostle Paul. And Paul writes this letter from a prison cell uh, in Rome. He writes it to a little church in the town of Philippi. And it's the only letter that Paul writes that he doesn't have anything negative to say to the church. So of all Paul's 13 letters, right, all of them start in some way like saying, hey, I love you guys, I miss you guys, I'm thankful for you guys. But then immediately he just kind of turns into dad mode and he's like, but you got some things like you just need to quit doing. Like I'm about to stop the car if you don't knock it off. Like you're in trouble. And Philippians is the only book where he, he doesn't do that, right? He doesn't do that. Instead, the theme of the book of Philippians is joy. Now stop, because where's Paul writing the book at? Prison. But while in prison, he's writing a book with a theme about joy. Because even in prison, Paul's saying, hey, you remember that famous verse? I've learned the secret to be content in all things. So whether I have money, or whether I don't have money, or whether I'm in a nice house, or whether I'm in jail, how can I be content? It's not winning the football game, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? You know where I'm going with that? Paul's saying I can learn to be content in everything because of Christ who gives me strength. And I love the book of Philippians because of the way the church begins. If if you look in the book of Acts, uh, it just shows us that there's not a better picture of how the gospel levels the playing field, right? That, That the gospel brings people together from all walks of life, from different hobbies, different interests, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnicities, because what the gospel says is that we're all a bunch of bad guys who need Jesus that like nobody's better than anybody else. And so the book of Philippians, like how this church starts shows that because Acts tells us that the first convert was this wealthy fashionista named Lydia, who when you read about her, you find out that she was probably the Gucci or the Versace of her time, right? She dabbled in purple clothing and she hears the gospel. She hears about what Jesus has done. She's saved and the church begins. The second convert, is a poor demon-possessed slave girls whose masters used her to make money for years by divination or by fortune-telling. And in Acts, it says that she sees Paul and she follows him around for days, telling people that, hey, this guy is a servant of God, you need to listen to him. And I love the language in Acts because it says Paul becomes greatly annoyed with her. Like Paul was a little cranky, I like that about Paul. And so Paul finally turns around and he says, hey, come out of her. The demon leaves, the girl's saved. She becomes a Christian and you have the second convert to the church. Now the problem occurs is that she can't make money for her masters anymore and so Paul's beaten, sent to jail. Well, Paul's in jail and since he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him, he's in jail singing songs to the Lord and all of a sudden an earthquake comes, opens all the, the prison cells, all the prisoners get out well, the jailer, who is in charge of taking care of Paul and all these prisoners, realizes that, oh no, the prisoners got out. I work for Rome. They don't give you severance pay. Decides, I'm just going to go ahead and kill myself because that's what's coming for me. And in an act of grace and kindness, Paul shows up and says, hey, everybody's here, man. Don't kill yourself. We're here. The jailer brings them to his house. He's saved, he's baptized, and the church begins. And so what I want you to see is that, that Paul's writing to these people, these three people in particular that begin this church that have nothing in common. You have one who's very rich, one who's very poor, one who's kind of a blue collar guy, but yet the gospel bridges all those things and it brings them together. That's what it's supposed to do, right? I love it because we see that happening in our church, right? We have different ages, right? We, we've got different towns, right? I mean, we've got people from Perryton coming, and even Groover is coming over here. And it's because of Jesus. It's because of the gospel. It's because of what's happening. It has nothing to do with where we live or who we are, but it's because of Jesus. And so in chapter one of, of Philippians, Paul talks about how thankful he is for the church and how they've partnered with him in the gospel. And then he says, hey, everything that's happened to me, my trials, my imprisonment, my beatings, all the things that I've been through, my sufferings have done nothing but further the cause of the gospel. Which is the message of the Bible, right? Is that that God uses our sufferings for good and Paul says, hey, it's just advanced the gospel. The famous verse found in Philippians 121, what's Paul say? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know how frustrating Paul was to the Romans, right? We're gonna kill you, Paul. It's cool, man, to die is game. That's all right, let's go. Well, fine, we're gonna let you live. Well, that's cool too, man. I'm just gonna keep doing what I'm doing. And at the end of chapter one, he encourages the Philippians to live a life worthy of the gospel. And chapter two opens with this beautiful description of what the gospel is, right? So after the long intro, would you please stand with me? And we're gonna honor the reading of God's word. Philippians chapter two, Starting in verse one, here's what Paul says. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Uh, father, I pray today that as we specifically look at this trait of humility and how embracing humility is the way to be saved, that, that Father, you would convict us of those areas of our lives where we've walked in arrogance and we've walked uh, in, uh, in, in patterns of sin that, 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 that try to be like our first father, Adam, by saying that we can grasp um, glory and that you would convict us of that. I pray if there's anyone here that doesn't know you today as the gospels preach, that you would save and change their lives, and it's in your name we pray, amen. I read a quote this week by a guy named James Montgomery Boyce, and it's, it's an old quote, but I think it's pretty relevant. Listen to what he says. He says, we live in mindless times, days in which millions of people are drifting along through life, manipulated by the mass media, particularly television, and they hardly know it. Few give thought to their eternal souls. And most, even Christians, are unaware of any way of thinking or living other than that of the secular culture that surrounds them. I think it's pretty relevant, right? I think you could take out television. We could probably put in the internet there, right? And, and mass media. But if you think about it, we, we live in mindless times, don't we? I mean, think about who our celebrities are and our famous people are now. Most of the time, it's not people that have to do anything to prove that they've got talent right? Get a TikTok account, do something stupid, and all of a sudden you can get a national platform. I mean, you, you can, right? Be, be an influencer on Instagram and just take pictures of yourself over and over and over again, and you can get a platform. Like, like it's mindless, the things that, that we buy into, right? Critical thinking's gone out the window. We don't have that anymore. It's mindless, and we live in mindless times, and what I love about Philippians chapter 2 is that Paul gives us the remedy for the mindless times in which we live in by offering all of us the mind of Christ. So look at chapter two, look at verses one and two. Paul says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So verse one. If there's any encouragement, any comfort, uh, any love, any affection, any, any sympathy in Christ. Now, that if right there, what you need to know is that is a conditional if. So, so Paul's saying, if, if you've received the gospel... If you know Jesus, if he saved you, then these things should be evident in your life. So yes, listen, of course there is encouragement, there's love, there's comfort, there's sympathy, there's affection. All of those are found in the gospel and all of those should flow out of the life of those who have believed that message. So if those things are true, and they are, then complete my joy. So in other words, Paul saying, follow the Christian experience out to its logical conclusion. And its logical conclusion is this, by having the same love and having one mind in verse two, right? Th- those two phrases are very similar and they book in that sentence. Essentially, they're telling us that the Christian mind is essentially corporate in nature. It's concerned with unity, It's not just concerned with ourselves uh, and being lone rangers. It's concerned with one another. So, to think about Christianity is to think about the Christian life in the context of the community of God's people. Every time. The Bible knows absolutely nothing of churchless Christianity. You will not find it, especially in the New Testament. It's not there, it's lived out in the context of God's people. Right. One of the things I think we've learned over the last 18 or 19 months is that live streams are awesome. They're useful tools. They're things that we can use, but they are not church. So, so if you're watching at home, I'm glad you are, but understand that is a poor substitute than being gathered with God's people. That, that live stream that you watch of that pastor that you love, that's awesome and that's a good tool and that's a good resource It is not church, okay? And that is not what the Bible calls us to. In in fact, I don't know how things are gonna go, but we won't shut this place down ever again, all right? Because we need to be together. We need to be around one another. It is meant to be lived in the context of community. And a Christian mind is one that's lived in community. So our mindless age, it's devoid of community, is it not? Our mindless age is all about me, me, me. It's about what can I get out of uh, life. It's all about looking out for number one. But what Paul tells us is that the Christian mind is one that we have the same love. So in other words, our love's not to be selective. Our love is to be even-handed, generous, and equal to all in this room. And, And that's hard, right? Because we've talked about EGRs before, right? Extra grace required people. I'm one. I know I am. But, but if you're in here and you say, well, I don't know any EGRs, because that's probably because you are the EGR. That's why, okay? That's okay. But it's to be even-handed to all. W- one mind literally translates as one soul. That this is what Christian unity looks like. That it is a unity that is so profound, it's as though we had one soul between us. It's like as a church, we're a single person moving in a single direction. So it means that we should have a personal relationship with Jesus, yes and amen. And that every one of us in this room need to answer that question, do I know Jesus? Have I trusted in Jesus? But it should not stay private. It's a life lived in community with one another, with each other. So that's why if you go through our new members class, one of the things we tell you is that we want you to be involved in a small group. So Some of you love to go to Sunday school. That's awesome. You need to be involved in that group with a a community of like-minded Christians. We have home groups that are starting in a few weeks. You need to be involved in something like that so that you can be in a community of like-minded Christians because that's what Paul tells us is that we're to live together in unity. One mind, one soul, right? And In verse three and four, he shows us then how that works itself out. Verse three, he says, do nothing from selfish ambition, Uh, or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves so let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interest of others so Paul says one mind one soul moving in one direction and he shows us how that works and he starts negative and then he works positive so he says don't do anything out of rivalry or conceit so the reason we have rivalry in our churches is because of conceit now your translation may say empty conceit, it may say vain glory, but in Greek that's all just one word, right? It's, it's the word kenodaxia. It's It's a highly exaggerated self-view seeking personal glory and acclaim. So a person who has vain conceit is always right right they, they do it right every time they're always right everyone else is wrong that's a person with vain conceit or or uh or, or vain glory one commentator says to have this word kenodoxia to have conceit is to be glory empty so as human beings we are all glory empty all of us We were originally created to live forever. We were originally created to stand in God's presence for eternity and to experience God's glory. To have a relationship with Him, to have His glory fill our hearts, to fill our souls, to complete us. But because of the fall, because of what our first parents did, we've turned away from that and now every one of us in this room are desperately looking to everyone else to say, hey, you're good. Man, you're awesome. Man, you're wonderful. Man, you're a success at what you do. You're important. You're worthwhile. You're amazing, right? It's the reason I'll get off the stage and go, man, I sure hope I did a good job. I want somebody to tell me today. We all do it. Listen to what Tim Keller says. He says, pride's the grand illusion. The fantasy of fantasy, the cosmic put on. The fantasy that we can make it as little gods leaves us empty at the center Once we decide we must make it on our own, we're attacked by the demons of fear and anxiety. So we learn to swagger, to bluff, to use symbols to cover up our fears that we lack substance. We force other uh, other people to act as buttresses for the shaky ego that pride created. See, we're so desperate for that. We're so conceited that that's what we want and that's why we fight. It's called pride. So that's why we live our lives most of the time unconsciously wondering how can this person uh, contribute to my need to prove that I count. And so our lives just become one constant battle to use people to bolster ourselves. It's the reason we post on the gram, right? Right? It's the reason you get on Facebook. It's the reason we tweet. It's the reason that we do that. It's the reason that those companies know that you will get a hit of dopamine every time you get a like, right? And you check, like, oh, they like my picture of my kids today. Yeah, right? They think my kids are cute. It's the reason we do those things. But it's also the reason that we compare ourselves to others. It's the reason that we become bitter when we don't measure up to others. It's the reason why we get envious and jealous. It's the reason why malice happens when we see the success of others and we feel like we're not as successful as they are. It's pride, it's conceit. It's the need for respect. And here's what Paul wants you to know. If we're to be one mind and one soul, Paul says there is no room for this kind of interpersonal, political power plays in the church. Self-exaltation does not belong here. And if you think about it, self-exaltation was the first sin, wasn't it? First serpent came to the first Adam, and what did he say, hey man, you can be God. And Adam's like, man, I'll take that that deal. Adam and Eve are like, yeah, we'll take it. And what did they do? They reached out and they looked out for their own interests and they failed. And so every time you and I look out only to our own interests, we essentially say what the first Adam said. I can be God. I can do it on my own. I can fix what's wrong with me. See, it's not about getting yours or getting the recognition you think you deserve. Paul says, listen, none of that should be evident in the church. None of that belongs here. And then in verse four, Paul shows us exactly what it's to look at. What does he say? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So when you see that word, own interest," you can underline it, and maybe right above it, you can just put fill in the blank. That's what it is. Interest is just a a filler word, right? So, So basically, he's saying, don't look to your own house, job, money, family, friends, but also look to the house, job, money, family, friends, Of others. It's not about just thinking about yourself all the time, it's about thinking about others. It's disadvantaging ourselves for the sake of our brothers and sisters in Christ. So, So, if we're honest, when was the last time we really did something like that? Right? When was the last time that we willingly placed ourselves at a disadvantage for the welfare of another brother or sister? When was the last time we disadvantaged ourselves for someone else with no glance out of what we might get out of it? Because again, let's be honest, we're always trying to say, well, if I help them, then they'll like me more. If I help them, they might help me in my job or they might like, help me get a leg up or whatever it is. Like, When was the last time we did something, no glance of what this means for me? disadvantaged ourselves so someone else might benefit, that someone else might be directed to Jesus, that a brother or sister might be helped along the path of Christian obedience. Paul says look to others' interests, not your own. Disadvantage yourselves for brothers and sisters so that they may have every advantage to seek progress in the Christian life. And what Paul tells us very clearly is this, is that, that the key, that the, that, 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 that the key in doing this is not vain glory, it's not conceit, it's not pride. What does he say uh, in verse four? He says, uh, look not on you, but also to the interest of others. In other words, what he says in verse three, excuse me, but in humility, he says, count others as better than yourself, in humility. Now, the Greek society to which Paul was writing, humility was seen as a bad thing now, in our culture, we, we see humility as a good thing. You have Christianity to think for that, thank for that. But in the Greek society, humility was, was, was a bad thing. In fact, the, the, the root word Paul uses for humility was used to describe the mentality of those at the bottom of the social ladder. He was used to describe the mentality of, of a slave. And so in the Greek society, the only way for people to respect you was if people feared you. So to be humble was the attitude of a slave. So in the Greek pecking order, to look out for the interest of others was considered a liability. Now now in our culture, we talk a lot about humility, don't we? Right? Right? Go home and watch any football game, any athletic event. After it's over, they're going to put the microphone in the guy's face. What's he going to say? Man, I'm just trying to stay humble. Right? And and that's probably true. He probably is. Right? But, But the reality is, is we're really not that humble as a society, are we? We're pretty arrogant in what we think we can do, and, and how awesome we are, and how important we are. We're really not much different than the Greek society. And what Paul wants you and I to know is this, is that humility is the key to salvation. See, without humility, we can't be saved. So, so if you were to walk up to God and say, hey, listen, God, I, I want a relationship uh, with you, so yeah, here's my resume. Look look at all my accomplishments, look at all that I've done, look at how amazing I am. God is going to look at you and say, hey, you don't know who I am. You don't know who you are, and you don't know what the cross of Jesus means. But if you say, Lord, I I repent, Lord, I need your grace, I have nothing to bring to the table to to earn your favor, and I ask that you would save me for Jesus' sake that's repentance, that's faith, that's being saved by grace through faith, that's humility to recognize that I can't do it on my own, and this is what Paul's trying to get you and I to see, that it's humility that's the way into the kingdom, and it's humility that we now live out in one mind, one love, one soul together here in the church, right? Now, here's where it gets really hard, because what is humility? Well, humility is not being down on yourself, right? Humility is not being like, well, I'm a moron, right? Well, I don't like the way I looked in the mirror this morning, right? I don't have enough money. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, right? Because when you're thinking less of yourself, you're still thinking of yourself, right? I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, humility isn't thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Humility can be best described as self-forgetfulness. Humility is self-forgetfulness. Tim Keller had had a brilliant illustration I read on this as he was talking, like, if you go to work tomorrow and somebody walks into work tomorrow and they're like, boy, my elbows feel great today. The only reason that person said their elbows feel great that day was because yesterday their elbows didn't feel great, right? Usually if your elbows are working just fine, Your elbows aren't drawing a lot of attention to themselves. Amen? See, that's humility. So if you're walking in humility, you're not even thinking about it. You're not thinking about how you're doing. You wouldn't be thinking about yourself or your interests at all. You would be looking at God. You would be looking at your neighbor. You would be looking at everybody else. I was listening to a podcast yesterday, and this guy was talking about how when he was a young pastor, he was bragging on how well their church was doing. And he was sitting across from a, a, a writer at the time and he was like, man, God's doing a lot of good stuff in our church and man, we're just staying humble and, and we're just growing in humility. And the, the writer looks at him and he goes, man, that's, that's really great that you can recognize how humble you are. <laughs> humility is self-forgetfulness, right? And humility's hard because listen, you can't directly work on humility. You can't do it. So, so as I'm putting this together, I'm getting more arrogant. As you're listening to me right now, you're getting more arrogant. You're becoming less humble, right? So be humble and admit it because every one of you in the back of your minds is going, boy, I sure hope they're listening. I know a few people need to hear this. I thought the same thing when I was putting it together. I was like, I hope Mary's listening today because, man, I mean, (laughs) this, this is for her. When you leave here today, and hopefully you're, you're dwelling on this text throughout the week and you're coming back to it. But the first time you see somebody being prideful or selfish and arrogant, your thought is going to be, well, at least I'm not like that. I listen to the sermon. See, the minute that you think you're humble or the minute that you have to tell people that you're humble, you have to voice it, is the minute the reset button's hit and you're no longer humble. That's tough, isn't it? Because if you're like me and you're reading that and you're studying and you're listening, you're like, I'm a terrible person. Like I'm so arrogant, I'm so cocky, right? And, and I'm, I'm just looking down at myself right now, honestly. I was telling Joe that, I was like, man, I got to the end of this and I'm just navel gazing now going, I'm terrible. But see, listen, that's what the gospel does. Is it first and foremost, it humbles us to the ground, but it doesn't leave us there. Look what Paul does next. I love verse five, right? So after he's, he's exhorted them, he's chastised them, all of a sudden he turns and look what he says. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's like Paul's exhorting them and Paul knew that after he got done with verse four that they would all be looking down at themselves just feeling horrible about it. And it's as if Paul comes and he's putting his hands under their chins and he's going, hey, don't hang your head, lift your head. Brothers, sisters, lift your head. Stop looking at yourself and instead pay attention to Jesus. Get your eyes off of you and all the ways that you fail and get your eyes up on the cross. Look at Jesus. And in verse five, most scholars believe this is a hymn, that it's, a, it's an ancient hymn that Paul busts out singing as he's writing this. And what he's telling us is that the only way that we're gonna fix what, what's wrong with us, the only way that we're gonna be people of humility is not by trying harder. It's by looking to Jesus. That when the gospel of Jesus captures your heart, guess what? Humility is the byproduct of knowing Jesus. So what did Jesus do? Well, first he says, although he was God, meaning everything about Jesus fits God perfectly. That's what it means. William Temple says, in God there is nothing unchrist-like at all. I like that. In God, there is nothing unchrist-like at all. That, that he did not consider that something to cling to, something to, to be grasped at. Now, now, now don't blink. Stop, okay? The first Adam saw equality with God as something to what? To be grasped. He he reached out and, and took the fruit. And the consequences of what the first Adam have done have reverberated throughout history. Joe read this to open our service. 1 Corinthians 15, 21 through 22. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, all die. As in Adam, all are glory empty. As in Adam, all are arrogant. As in Adam, all are prideful. All are looking at at equality with God, something that we can grasp. But so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So the first Adam, solid as something to be grasped, but the second Adam, Jesus, the better Adam, didn't count equality with God something to be grasped. Instead, what does he say? He emptied himself. He emptied himself. Your translation may say he made himself nothing. The word there is kenosis, right? Catch that word? Kenodoxia is vainglory, kenosis is emptying. It's the opposite of conceit. It's the opposite of vainglory. He emptied himself. Now, there's, important theological point that you, you hear here. This does not mean that he emptied himself of deity at all. Do not think that. It doesn't mean that he changed forms or changed modes, right? That's, a, that's an ancient heresy. It's called modalism. That's not what happened here. It means that our God added humanity to his deity. He added humanity to to his deity, and this is the wondrous mystery that we'll sing about in a moment, that the unchanging, all-knowing God takes into union with his divine nature, humanity. That our God became a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and he didn't stop being God, but he embraced the attributes of man. And he didn't become a wealthy businessman. He didn't become a TikTok influencer. He didn't become rich or powerful. He didn't become a king. Instead, the Bible says he became a slave. He became small. He became beatable and he was beaten. He was rejected. Our God lost all of his glory and in doing so, he redeemed a new humanity. That's what the second part of 1 Corinthians 15 says, for as in Adam all die, in Christ shall all be made alive. See, this is the gospel. Jesus was treated the way we deserve. So now when we believe in him, we're treated the way he deserves. So Jesus now looks at you and says, you're loved and valued more than you could possibly imagine, and it's not because of what you do, it's not because of all the games that you play, it's all because of what I've done for you. And when that message received into our hearts, it changes us because now we realize this, hear me, the way up is down. The way to be rich is down. Truly rich is to give away. The way to rule is to serve, to become happy. It's not seeking about your own happiness, but to seek the happiness of others, right? One mind, one soul, one love going in one direction. That's what verse nine tells us, that Jesus' humiliation on this earth, one day, what's he gonna do? It's gonna give way to exaltation. It's gonna give way to exaltation. It says that God now exalted him. So Jesus didn't stay dead. The stone rolled away, and he's now in heaven, exalted above every name as the King of Kings. And one day the government will sit on his shoulders. And Jesus will reign there until, as Psalm 101, verse 1 tells us, till, till, till he makes all of his enemies your footstool. footstool. So one day, because of Jesus' humiliation leading to exaltation, what's going to happen? Every knee is going to bow. And every is gonna confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All right, so get this in your mind. Picture that. All of humanity from Adam until the day Christ drops the curtain on history will be lined up. And every person in this life who in arrogance and in conceit and in vain glory refused to bend the knee to the king, on that day, they will bend the knee. On that day, they will confess that you are Lord. And as soon as they do that, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. But then for the rest of us that know Jesus, who bend the knee in this life, who in humility, we say, I got nothing to bring to the table. But for the grace of God, I, I would not be welcomed in. We will bend the knee. We will confess him as King of kings and Lord of lords. And then he will say, enter in, well done Well done, good and faithful servant. Enter in. Enter into your rest. Enjoy the Lord forever. What a day that's gonna be for us, right? So the question before all of us today is whose likeness do you bear? Do you bear the likeness of the first Adam who thought he could grasp equality with God and in arrogance disobeyed? Or do you bear the likeness of the second Adam, Jesus, who though he was in God, in humility, emptied himself and carried our sins to the cross? See, if you're in the first Adam, hear me, everything you do will be for you and everything you do will be for your reputation. It'll be done out of conceit. It'll be done out of rivalry. It'll be done out of vain and glory. And there will be nothing more important to you in this life than your reputation. But, but if you're in the second Adam, you can constantly meditate on Philippians 2.7 that says, but he emptied himself by taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men. Because even though we're in the second Adam, we still have, have remnants of the, the first, don't we? And so we, we constantly have to live this Christian life of repentance where we're saying, okay, I see where I walked in arrogance here. And if Jesus Christ can make himself of no reputation, if he can lose his reputation for me, if his reputation didn't mean anything to him and he gave it up for us, then I can give my reputation up for him. So Father, forgive me, I'm turning back to you. But see, this only happens by looking to Jesus. And so I pray that by God's grace, we become a church that instead of looking at ourselves and our reputations, that we could constantly get our eyes off of us and we would raise our gaze to the cross and that we would see Jesus. And when that message grabs a hold of our hearts, then listen, we become a church, we become a people who considers the interests of others more important than our own. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for this day and I thank you for your word and I thank you for what it teaches us and what it shows us. Father, I pray that in humility, we would run to you for what we cannot do and that father you would uh, save and change our lives I pray that we become a church that father uh, has one love one mind one soul moving in one direction that father that because you emptied yourself for us that we now would empty ourselves and let go of our reputation for one another and that we would continue to move forward to advance the gospel throughout Spearman and through our area Father, thank you for all that you've given. I pray if anyone is here and that does not know you, that today you would save them uh, and, and change them. And they would not leave here today until they, they talk to, to Joe or myself or a good friend saying, say, hey, I came in here and I didn't know Jesus, but something's changed. Father, be with us now as we sing about the wondrous mystery of what you've done for us through your son, Jesus, through the better Adam who did what we could not do. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. If you would please.